0: or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za You know, by the fact that I see your face, your heart is in the place today where you want to hear about Jesus. You want to love Jesus more. You want to live a life that honors Him. You want your life to feel as if it has meaning. And I'm so aware of the fact that so many of you here today are living in pain. There's grief and there's sorrow. So many people going through very hard times. And just for these few moments today, I would like to transport you somewhere else. I would like you to come with me as I transport you away from this room, even away from Living Hope Church, away from the time in which we live. I'd like to transport you away from the difficulties that are pressing on you, just for these few moments. So I invite you to stop and say to yourself right now, lay all of those things down, lay all of the difficulties down, And let me move away. Let me follow the words that I hear today. And let me be transported. Ask God. Ask God to transport you away today. I'd like to take you to one of the most moving scenes in the history of this world. And that scene is the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you're ready to come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane, let's ask God to transport us today. Lord, thank you for these few moments where we get to open the Word of God and where we get to see the one that our hearts love. Lord, help us to leave, just for a few moments, help us to leave all of our concerns behind. Help us, Lord, to be transported out of our own personal pain and sorrow. And help us, Lord, just for these few moments to look at our Lord Jesus Christ bowed down in the Garden of Gethsemane. Help us to see him with our eyes. Help us to hear his voice and his breathing with our ears. Help us, Lord, to feel something of the pain that our Lord Jesus Christ is enduring on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to see something of what is going on in his heart, the the absolute terror that the Lord Jesus is facing in Gethsemane. Lord, we pray, help us in our weakness. Help us to have this moment, just a few moments, Lord, just to look on Jesus and nowhere else, to look on our God, our bleeding Savior, in that garden. And Lord, as we see him, please help us, Lord, to to see the magnitude of our own sin. But even more, that, more than that, Lord, help us to love him. Help us to love Jesus. Help us to be positively passionate about Jesus. Move our hearts, please, Lord. Please open our hearts that we would see him. Make our hearts bigger so that we can receive him in a new way today. That we would see him in all of his beauty struggling in agony and sweat and tears in that garden. Help us to move, Lord. Help us to be transported there today. We trust you to do this, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. You all remember that in John's Gospel, he utters these massive words, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John 1:14. What a beautiful, beautiful text. And what John was doing there in John 1 verse 14, was he was showing us that in the day, the philosophy of Philo the Greek, the, the philosopher, Philo the Jew, sorry, the philosopher, had this idea, this philosophic idea that there was a force, there was a power, that unified all things the sort of almighty power and he was teaching this great unifying power and when john the apostle comes along and he speaks about jesus he uses the same words that philo the jew used when he spoke about the logos that great big unifying power the word literally the word you know if you know greek logos is word So he was saying this great big logos, this great big philosophical unifying power, that great big power became a man and he lived among us. Did you see him? Yes, you did see him. You crucified him on the cross. And what a glorious reality that we have God incarnate living for a few years with a few men, training them up to be the bearers of a glorious, glorious message to the generations to come. And here we sit, you and I, as recipients of that message, men and women and children who have heard about the great Logos, the great God becoming man and living among us. And not only that, but dying for us and as us. I would like to just take you through a few verses in Mark's gospel today. Mark chapter 14. And I knew I was quite safe to preach this message because I have preached the same message, well, similar, at Living Hope Church before, but that was in early 2010. So maybe just a show of hands, who was there as we met on the sidewalk outside of the coffee house when we first started the church and who heard me preaching this sermon? Jesus looking into the cup that the Father presented for him. Two, three. Amazing, hey? Three people in the congregation. So I realized it was quite safe to bring you back to Gethsemane and to preach the same message again. It's, it's a beautiful moment. So if we read that text, we see verse 32. Let's be transported into the garden. They went to a place, that's Jesus and his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. It took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And as I look at the great God, the great unifying power, the great creating God coming into human flesh, and taking his disciples all 12 of them and placing them there well, they would you know just a few of them at this stage remember Judas is half out you know some accounts show Judas is already gone to betray Jesus but uh, he's coming back so there's there's 11 disciples with Jesus and Judas is hovering around there somewhere they still didn't know what Judas was going to do but as the Lord Jesus Christ begins to feel the state of being deeply distressed and troubled, you've got to ask, what was it? What was it that drove God incarnate to come into a state where He's deeply distressed and troubled? Now, if we had to use this in our our current language today, we would have to use words like alarmed or terrified or even... He came into a state of horror. Here's Jesus. He's just walking with His his disciples. He says to the bulk of them, Sit here while I pray. He takes Peter, James and John, the closer inner circle, and He moves further into a place where this is going to be a private moment where His very closest friends were permitted to be within earshot of Him during these moments as He speaks with His Father. But Jesus is overwhelmed with horror. He's overwhelmed with terror. He's in a state of being alarmed. He's frightened. And it, it astounds me that this person, the great God of the universe in flesh, can be in that state. In fact, if we look at what he says there in verse 34, he says that his, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is how filled with horror and terror Jesus is as he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. I don't know if you can remember the last time you felt like this, in a state of horror, a state of terror. I mean, some of us might be able to say, I don't know if I can say I've ever really been in a state of terror. And if I've never been in a state of terror as a fallen human being what must it have been for jesus with his complete understanding to be in that state of terror yet here we find him it's like abraham in genesis 15:12 where the text says that a thick and dreadful darkness came over abraham the sense of dread can you imagine abraham he was in a sort of a coma god puts him to sleep but it's a terrifying terrifying darkness and he sees God almighty come you remember the scene that God instructed Abraham to take that you know those animals and to cut them in half and to you know put one half of the animal here and one half a very gruesome gruesome scene can you imagine hacking a cow in half and pulling one half of the cow there there's blood and mess, you know, insides of the animals lying all over the place. And then Abraham sits there and he waits for God, and suddenly this thick and dreadful darkness comes over him, and he sees God walking between the halves of his sacrifice. Dreadful, terrible, terrifying moment for Abraham. And and the whole message of that scene with Abraham is, if this covenant is broken, you end up just like that, in that gruesome, terrible, horrible state. And now Jesus is going in as a sacrifice for his people. And he's the only party who's making this covenant. And he's ending up like that. He's ending up like that gruesome scene that Abraham saw. A thick and dreadful darkness is coming upon Jesus as he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. You notice as we read a moment ago here in verse 34, uh, verse 33, He's uncomfortable. He's not, a, he's not in a state where he feels at home. The Greek is very expressive here. He's not, he's not at home. The experience of being troubled and restless and in unfamiliar surroundings. A sense of dread. You know what it's like when you sleep in a strange place. Hope was telling me when we went to the camp. At night, the one night, the ladies were sleeping in their bungalow. And next thing all of the dogs started barking and they were barking like freaking out. You know when dogs bark and they and they don't just go woof woof woof. They start barking like wah 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 and sounds like one big long bark and they're not even breathing between you know, this like they're not even gasping for air. They're just barking, barking, you know, on, in one stream. And Apparently the girls at the camp were a little bit freaked out by that, and of course they didn't want to go outside to find out what was happening. But the dogs were freaking out. You know, it's out in the bush. You never know what's there. Is it a leopard? Is it a criminal? You know, coming and their door. I mean, door door didn't even lock. At, at you know one point in the night, the door just popped open by itself. So they so worried about what's going on. They didn't feel at home. Felt this unusual sort of, I I don't feel safe here. I don't feel protected. I feel like something bad could happen. And with Jesus, he's feeling troubled. He's not only distressed, but he's troubled. And he, he feels like this is not the place I want to be. I'm not at home here. I feel like I could be damaged in this place. I could get injured. My blood could be shed right here. We think of a story that I read a few years ago probably now 10 years ago I say a few years but let's say it's a 10 years plus I read a story of a guy who was incarcerated in a, a prison in Zimbabwe and while I was preparing for the sermon I, I tried to find the prison I thought I remembered the name but obviously it was fake you know I didn't I couldn't find that prison by Google searching it but the guy described this prison as a prison that was low down, you know, it was on low-lying land, which meant that it was next to a swamp. And because it was so hot there in Zimbabwe, they they didn't have windows in this prison. They had these gratings at the top of the walls, between the top of the wall and the roof, so the the air from outside could come in and out. There was no windows that closed or opened there. It was just kind of an open-air thing, pretty much like that open-air prison they've got in Zambia. But this guy said that he got incarcerated there for a short period of time. And then he was released. And he said, a person who goes into that prison, it doesn't matter whether you are there as a violent, you know, as the worst kind of criminal, or whether you just go there for some small little offense or some misunderstanding, it's a death sentence to go into that prison. Because if you're not killed in that prison by the AIDS, then you're killed by by the malaria. And if you're not killed by the malaria, you're killed by the injustice because they put you in that prison and it takes forever for you to get a court case. So fortunately, this guy had a very high-powered lawyer who managed to get him out of that, out of that prison, but he saw many people dying in the short time that he was in that prison. Imagine traveling in a country like that, and you know some traffic cop pulls you off, and you suspect they want to bribe you, And you're not willing to pay a bribe. And they say, okay, well, buddy, you're in prison. And they chuck you in that prison. You're not at home. The only thing you want while you're in that prison is to be back at home. You want to be free from that place because you're going to die there. And you can imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's going to his death. He knows he's going to bleed and die within the next few hours. He's not at home. The death that the Lord Jesus Christ has long been predicting, now fills the horizon for him. All he can see is his own death looming ahead of him. And in this horrible, these terrible moments that he's facing, he knows that there's no way out. He has to go through death. He has to go through an absolutely terrible death. So he says to his disciples in verse 34, My soul... Is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. Of course, this is difficult to understand, isn't it? As we see this man, Jesus Christ, walking in the garden on his own feet, a God in human flesh. And God says to you, The disciples knew he was God incarnate. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, who do people say I am? And Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, God has revealed that to you. You know who I am. And now these disciples are walking and they see God incarnate. The one that they know is God. He's saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How can it be that this great one, this great one who is going to become the ruler of the whole, whole universe... Can be said say my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow. What do you mean, Jesus? What kind of a sorrow is this that you're experiencing? The Greek word there is is perilupos. I like these Greek word, and lupos is pain. And peri, of course, as we get from our medical terminology, is like being absolutely surrounded by pain there's there's nothing about me that is not feeling pain at this moment everything is pain and when he says that this sorrow is to the point of death i believe that there's no other way to interpret this but to but to understand it as jesus saying i'm so surrounded by pain at the moment that if this experience had to carry on for a greater period of time, just this pain alone would kill me. And I don't know if you've been in pain. I, I've been experienced some pain in my life. And I've felt that the intensity of the pain at times has been so intense that I could probably die. But I know that I've been far from the pain that the Lord Jesus Christ has been in. It was then that the deep waters came rushing in upon his soul. Psalm 69, verses 1 to 2, the psalmist cries out, he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, the floods engulf me. You imagine Jesus, if you just... The imagery of the scene is very graphic. It's like Jesus is in deep water and He's sinking down and He's sinking down and it's like the, the water is the pain that is surrounding Him. And He's saying, I can't find a way out. I can't breathe. There's no way out of this pain. What a graphic scene. And He's just sinking down and there's no place where He can put His feet and pushing, push Himself up again. He's surrounded. He's drowning in the pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I ask, if you were walking with Jesus and He said that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, what must have been the sound of His voice when God says to you, well, if I was in the garden, Ellen, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, what must it have sounded like? What would I have seen in Jesus' face if I looked at Him and I saw that distress in the face of the Son of God? What could trouble one so great? What could trouble Jesus so much that he would say to a mere mortal like me, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Why would he share that with me? What expression was on his face as he uttered those awful words? It gets so much more intense. When you read verse 35, when we come into verse 35 of Mark 14, it says, going a little further he fell with his face to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him abba father he said everything is possible for you take this cup from me yet not what i but what i will but what you will he fell he fell with his face to the ground and if you look at the way this is structured in the greek it is the imperfect tense it's an imperfect verb Which means that Jesus was falling and falling and falling. It was a continuous act. It was as if he was stumbling to the point where he couldn't stand up anymore. Falling to the ground and praying. It's almost like he was going and he was falling and praying at the same time, staggering until he fell down on his face and he couldn't get up to keep going anymore. And there's the great God of the universe lying on his face on the ground. In the Garden of Gethsemane. It's nighttime and it's dark, and there he is, alone, calling out to his father in those dark hours. He keeps falling, he keeps praying with his heart, his soul, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Valfoot and Zuck say in their commentary the full impact of his death. And its spiritual consequences struck Jesus and he staggered under its weight. The prospect of alienation from his father horrified him. It wasn't simply the physical suffering that he was about to endure. Remember in this text he says, Abba Father, my dear father, my dad. He said, everything is possible from you. Take this cup from me. Please, Father, take this cup away. It's because the cup, it is this cup that is in front of him. What is this cup? It is a terrible, terrible cup that Jesus is looking into. And he knows that he's going to have to drink that cup, and we're going to speak about that cup in a moment. But as Jesus is lying on his face in a a state of weakness, on the ground there in Gethsemane, On the other side, of course, remember, we see his disciples. In verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And you can't, you can't fathom this. Because as we are being transported into the scene, we are seeing the great God in human flesh, struggling to even stay on his feet. And as he's he's struggling to stay on his feet and eventually falls face down on the ground and he's saying, Father, Father, and he's calling out to his Father in heaven. And he's in mortal agony. He's in anguish. He's suffering. And there we see his disciples. Just like, whatever. And you know, when I come to verse 17... Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. You might, as well, you might as well put your own name in there. He returned to Alan and found him sleeping. And you know, how little the agony of Jesus means to me so often. And it's a, it's a grievous thing. It's so terrible that I can sin so easily. That I can disgrace the name of the Lord Jesus so easily. When here we see what it cost the Lord Jesus Christ in order to purchase my wretched soul for himself. Astounding. Sleeping disciples. And he said, Simon, in verse 37, he said to Peter, are you asleep? How can it be? My, my friend, Simon, you're one of the, you know, Peter, James and John. Simon Peter, Peter, you're one of the, the inner circle. I understand if you, all the other disciples are sleeping, but you're one of the inner circle. You're one of my closest friends in this world. You're one of the only people in this on this entire planet that I can speak to openly. You're one of the only people who understands that I'm the Son of God. You're one of the only people on this planet that I've said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And how do you respond, Peter? Just, ah, just I'm going to catch a few zeds over here. Jesus is busy. I know it's heavy for him, but I'm just going to catch a bit of sleep. Could you not keep watch for one hour? One hour. Watch and pray, Jesus said to him, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then verse 39 says there, he went Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. So he's praying the same thing. And as Jesus goes away and he prays, and his disciples carry on sleeping, there's no response. There's just Jesus speaking there and he's astounded. But he also understands, of course. And as Jesus is praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not afraid that he's going to die in the garden. He's not afraid that the soldiers are going to come and slaughter him there. He's not afraid. Yes, he's saying he's overwhelmed the sorrow to the point of death, but he's not afraid that the sorrow is going to kill him. He knows that the cup is coming. He knows that the death that his father has decreed for him will come. And he's asking his disciples just to look for the enemies, these people who are going to come and take him away to his place of death. He's not instructing his disciples to watch and pray. I mean, uh, he's he's instructing his disciples to, to pray, you know, keep watch and pray. But he's not instructing them to watch him pray. But he's also not ashamed of what they see. How many of us are ashamed that if somebody that we consider of less importance, if they see us in our weakness, we're like, no, no, we can't. People, my children can't see me weak. You know, that would be a disgrace. But here Jesus, with His closest disciples, He's God incarnate. He's falling and falling and falling on the ground until He doesn't get up anymore. And He's begging His Father to take this cup away from Him. And He's not ashamed that His disciples are going to see His weakness. Some of the gravity obviously impacted His sleepy disciples. How do we know that? How do we know that the disciples could hear what He was praying? Well, somebody had to write it down, didn't they? We have a record of what Jesus said. So his disciples, sleeping disciples, they must have heard something. What kind of tones did the disciples hear in Jesus' voice as he called out to his father, begging his father? Obviously, they heard respectful tones. They heard a son speaking to his father They heard gentle family tones where Jesus is speaking in such a way that He's not not demanding things of His Father, but He's trusting His Father's judgment. And they hear Jesus calling out, Abba, Father. What a beautiful moment. For the first time ever, they hear Jesus almost speaking to God the Father as Dad. Daddy. It's like He's reaching out for His Father's hand. For some assurance in these moments, but his father is pulling away and pulling away and he's feeling more and more alone and not at home in the garden of Gethsemane. Prostrate, lying on his face on the ground. Is this an ordinary scene? Do we see this every day? When last did you see somebody lying on their face on the ground because they lacked the strength to get up on their feet and begging, calling out to God? about something that is about to happen. I don't know when last you had that experience, when you've been so desperate before God. And if we are not familiar with this, if, if this is not an everyday occurrence for us, what about God? What about God Almighty, God in human flesh, lying in this weakness, begging His Father? Maybe for a moment, we could consider something of this cup. Father, he says in verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What is in the cup? What is this cup? What does the cup represent? Why is it that this cup, the one cup, this great looming cup in front of Jesus that he's going to have to drink down, what is in that cup? What is it? If we knew what was in that cup, we would understand why Jesus is so distressed. We would see, we would suddenly understand the dread of the Lord Jesus Christ overwhelmed the sorrow to the point of death, sinking down where there's no foothold and and grasping for the surface but there's no way out. Can you imagine drinking a cup, for example, of hydrochloric acid? If you don't know what hydrochloric acid is, um, it's the stuff that's in your stomach. You know, it eats your food. So if you you took a bowl of hydrochloric acid and you dropped a piece of KFC in there, poof, it would be gone. Acid would just consume it completely. It would be gone. It would just evaporate that piece of meat. It would just be nothing left. And can you imagine taking a cup of that and drinking it? you know, what effect that would have on your body. Of course, it'll be at home in your stomach. But the rest of your body, it would be absolutely terrible. Or maybe even, I mean, some of you like hot tea. But imagine taking the kettle and just downing some hot water out of the kettle while it's boiling. You'd say, ah, I can't even think of that. But Jesus is facing a cup. I mean, we would get the creeps when we think about those kind of things. But Jesus is facing a cup that for God, God incarnate, it is overwhelming him with sorrow to the point of death. What must have been in that cup? And what is in that cup is the the wrath of God against your sin and my sin. You know, some people's, other people's sin is repulsive to us, isn't it? I mean, we find our own sin repulsive. But normally for us, you know, because we flatter ourselves too much, we look at other people's sin and we're disgusted by what other people do. You know, our our ability to identify sin is always more acute when we look at other people. Hey, We will look at the way people look at you, the tone with which they say something, or even all the way, you know, to some horrific deed. Other people's sin is always worse than my own sin, isn't it? I always frame it in a worse way. So if we can be disgusted by other people's sin and we can't even see our own sin we need to think about something that we find absolutely repulsive and I have used some illustrations before and I'm I'm going to try not to use those illustrations again but just in the in the briefest of terms this week somebody that I know told me that a friend of theirs somebody that they know was working in their workshop and one of their workers murdered them with a hammer. They're busy working a car engine and the guy comes and just smashes his head with a hammer and you're like, That is sick, man. I can't imagine picking up a hammer and cracking someone's skull with it and killing them with a hammer. And in a moment, you know, without being graphic, you get what I'm saying. You can in a moment you can say, man, that you know, that shocks me. Shocks me that somebody would pick up a hammer and, and break somebody's skull with it and kill him right there. How angry do you have to be to do that? But now, again and again and again, to a far greater degree, here you've got Jesus looking into the cup and He's seeing the wrath of God poured out against every single sin like that and more and more and more and more. It's as if the wrath just keeps going and going and going. And as I look into that cup, I know all of the things that I've put into that cup and there's so many things, so many sins that I'm not even aware of. And there Jesus is looking in the cup and there's the wrath of God against this sin sin that Alan committed. And there's that other sin that Alan committed. And on that day he committed that sin. And day after day after day I'm filling that cup with the wrath of God for Jesus as he's on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's looking at that cup and he can see all of the consequences of my sin in that cup and he needs to put that cup to his lips and begin to drink. He needs to drink something that he hates more than anything in the world. Absolutely terrifying for Jesus to be made sin, to be closed with the thing that he hates the most. What do you hate the most? What thing would be absolutely disgusting? Let me, let me just tell you one, one quick incident that happened in my life. I was telling the girls in the car today, it was just a memory. My car used to park on the farm and we had a problem with rats on the farm you know often there's rats on the farm big crops a lot of food rats just multiply and I was using rat poison all the time one time I didn't realize but a rat just block your ears if you don't want to hear something gross a rat died inside my car's fan okay I get in my car start the engine whoo put the fan on woo <laughs> Next thing, little pieces of rats start flying out the air vents into my car. Serous man, little pieces of leather with fur on them, just everywhere, man. Just pa pa pa. Now, I was disgusted to have this dead rat like on my body, on my car, on the seats, on the carpets. You know, everywhere, just flicking all over the place. What would just dis- if I could take that rat and like put it all over you, you would say, sick, man. Ah, sick. You know, a baby's nappy, for example. Yeah. Hey. Um, I'm trying to create a moment here by saying we we hear the words, Jesus was clothed with something that disgusted him, and we're like, Yeah, it was terrible for Jesus to be made sin, but suddenly when you think of yourself being covered with something disgusting. You know, dead rat. You suddenly realize Jesus is looking into this cup and he's got to actually drink down something that is so disgusting to him, he doesn't even want to look at it. God's wrath against your sin. God is going to treat Jesus as the pervert that you and I are. Jesus would never think a perverted thought, Jesus would never be greedy. Jesus would never commit adultery in his mind or in even in his body. Jesus would never commit any of those sins, but now God is saying, My son, I'm going to treat you as if I did as if you did all of those things. And here it is, here's all of my wrath against that. Take the punishment for that. Be clothed with the thing that disgusts you the most. And you can imagine Him in the garden, gasping and breathing, Hebrews 5, 7, where it speaks about Him with loud cries and tears in the garden of Gethsemane, calling out to His Father, shouting. And in Luke chapter 24, we read this beautiful, beautiful moment as Jesus lies flat on His face in the garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, verse 43 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Imagine that moment. In such intensity, hematos, the Greek literally clots of blood, flopping to the ground as Jesus prayed. I mean, have you ever prayed like that? Can you imagine what kind of intensity drives Jesus to the point where where sweat mixed with blood from His capillaries is dripping onto the ground? Can you imagine what He looked like when He came back to His disciples and his, and His robe is stained with blood? He's been praying. A bloody prayer. He comes back to His disciples and he's, and he's soaked with blood. His garments are red. Can you imagine them waking up thinking it's part of a dream? As true as anything, there stands Jesus in the state of agony dripping with blood. There's no scene like this in all of history. You bring me any hero in history. In fact, I will challenge you to do this. You go home and you Google... Any of these terms like hero, great hero, glorious hero, hero, uh, heroic act, anything like that. You you try and find one single hero on the whole of the world wide web, and not only are you not going to find anything like Jesus, but you're not going to even find anything remotely close to him. Because if you search the ter- term hero, you're going to find all these stories about people who saved a kitty from a tree, you know, or rescued a dog from a shelter, you know, where he was being badly treated. There are no heroes left like this. We live in a world where people lack courage. We're a a generation of cowards. And here we see Jesus coming back just from praying with his blood-stained garments. And Jesus' glorious resolve is the only way. If Jesus had not gone through with this, with this resolve, we would have been lost. It's interesting in that text when an angel from heaven appears to him and strengthens him. Can you imagine? Just transport yourself into glory. There's God the Father. And he's called these angels around. Can you imagine? You could hear a pin drop in heaven. As their Lord and Master in his human flesh is in his weakness, on his face on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's calling out to his father. Can you imagine those angels? Father, send me. Send me. I'll sort this out. I'll rescue the master from this situation. But the, but the son is lying on his face saying, Not what I will, but what you will, Lord. And you can imagine the angels. We can't see our master in the state of disgrace. Lord, We want. let's just send a billion of us. And God, destroy the planet and rescue our Lord. And in a moment, the father says to one of the angels, go and strengthen your master. Can you imagine that angel just wah, from one place to the next in a flash? And he's, you can imagine the expression on this angel's face as, as he's, he's lifting his lord from the ground in his weakness, in his blood-stained garment, as he's staring into that cup and it's too terrifying for him to look. The wrath of God against your sin and against my sin. What a moment for that one angel. No, don't destroy the world. Just go and strengthen your Lord. What an honor. What an honor for that one angel. Imagine it was you or me, and God said, go and strengthen your Lord. Imagine us running into that garden. Jesus, Jesus, my Lord and my Master. Imagine going to Him as He's lying there. What do you do? How do you strengthen Him? You can't take away the cup, and it's the cup that is weakening Him, making Him... Uh, fall into that state but Jesus is still emphatic he says "Yet, yet not what I will but what you will and both of those words I and you are emphatic he's absolutely certain about this I want to just ask in this moment as the Lord Jesus Christ is in the state in the garden of Gethsemane And the disciples remembered a number of these details, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't have been written down. They must have heard Jesus praying some of what he prayed. And I want to know, how much did the disciples miss? Can you imagine we had a full record of what Jesus prayed? Can Can you imagine we had a full record of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane? Can you imagine they recorded all of the details about what Jesus looked like and how they felt, how they were moved? What a moment this was! As an angel comes and and uh, strengthens Jesus, but there they are sleeping and like, yeah, I mean, where were they? Where were the disciples when Jesus needed strength? Were the disciples gripped? by the intensity that we are seeing in this text. No, they were sleeping. Somehow they couldn't sense the gravity of these hours in spite of Jesus actually telling them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What would you do if your friend that you know is not a dramatic person came and said to you, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death? You would think they're going to kill themselves, hey? You would think, oh, this person's becoming unstable. I must treat this seriously. You would find out. You would ask questions. What's what's wrong? We've never seen you like this before. We don't know you as a dramatic person. But the disciples go off to sleep. They're like, ah, oh, we don't see the, the big issue here. They don't see the intimate personal moments, they don't see this as the pivotal moment upon which the history of the universe turns. Imagine the insult of being unmoved by this scene. Imagine you and I were sitting there on a chair watching Jesus on his face, and we're busy like WhatsApping people or you know, like googling recipes for you know sauce for pup. You know, you're like oh, yeah, Jesus, just let me know when you're ready, and we can go. It's getting a bit chilly out here. Imagine being unmoved by that. What an insult to Jesus. Your dread and my dread was in Jesus' cup and God is judging Jesus for your and my sin. And just the sight of the cup is having this effect on him, never mind actually going to the cross. Some of you may stop today and you may see in Jesus the absolute terribleness, the filth the depravity of your own sin and say, God, if my sin has caused so much dread to the Lord Jesus Christ, God help me to hate my sin. God help me to look at my sin in a new way. God help me to keep short accounts. God help me to be grateful for what Jesus has done just here in the Garden of Gethsemane, never mind the cross. And on the other side, Let's not stop at this motivation by guilt. You're so bad, you're so bad, you're so bad that this is what it costs Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus to consistently push through that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane and to go all the way to the cross and to go all the way to the point of death to actually drinking that cup and to actually being buried, to, to dying and being buried in the tomb and raising rising from the dead on the third day. And being ascended to glory from where he cannot be touched. And imagine looking at that Savior and saying, what a passion, what a love. God, help me to passionately and positively love in that way. Lord, help me to love Jesus. Help me to be moved positively by a sense of joy, a sense of love a positive sense of worship in everything that I do. Let me turn every moment, every day, into an act of worship. Just the ordinary thing, writing a note. Lord, thank you that I, I have a hand to write with. Lord, thank you that I have somebody to write a note to. Thank you that I'm breathing. I have eyesight. I have ears. Wonderful. Thanks, God, that I'm made in your image. May the scenes that the Lord Jesus Christ went through today, in order to purchase you, make you a person who's positively joyful about what you've received from Him. Some may stop and call out to God today. Others, like the disciples on that night, will just remain indifferent. and say, well, great sermon, you know, what, what was the guy talking about on Sunday? Yeah, uh, something, you know, what, what? <laughs> Some will see their shocking personal sin and hate it. Others will walk away unmoved and unsaved. And my prayer is that as you see these scenes, as as we've transported ourselves to these moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, that God would have mercy on your soul. In conclusion, I just say, if you had walked with Jesus on earth throughout His earthly ministry, if you had gone with Him into Gethsemane, if you had been selected to come closer with Him, like Peter, James, and John in the small inner group, While He prays in agony, if you had heard the unspeakable tones in which He pleaded with His Father in bloody agony, would you have been able to stay awake as He asked you to? Would it have changed your life? If even Jesus' disciples fell asleep, how much more do you and I need the empowering grace of God to honor Him with our lives? Lord, thank You for these, these few moments. Lord, You know that that human presentation of truth is always flawed and weak. And Lord, we just wish we could communicate more clearly and communicate well. But Lord, I pray that you would take these few moments, drill them deep into our hearts. Lord, cause, Lord, cause us to be astounded by our Lord, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Help us to be astounded as He goes in His weakness and He falls face down and He calls out to His Father. Help us to be astounded, Lord, not only by the dread that Jesus has to drink in our cup, but, Lord, help us to be astounded that our Lord was loving. He was so loving that He went through with it deliberately and intentionally in order to purchase my worthless soul for God forever and ever. What what an amazing reality. Lord, help us to love You. Help us to know You and to care about what You went through. And help us, Lord, to live lives of worship as a result of seeing just one more glimpse of Jesus Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name.